This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. It's now time for A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. From amazing stories to colorful personalities, join us as we go in-depth with the men and women that make up the Oakland Athletics Organization. It all starts right now. Time now for another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend here on A's Cast Powered by TuneIn. And we're going to have a lot of fun with this one because we've got the wonder dog, Rex Hudler, Longtime angel, he's a Yankee, love the way this guy played back in the day, and he now does TV for the Kansas City Royals as he gets us ready for Homer Bailey's first start. He's been watching him there in Kansas City. Then after him, we're going to have Brian Price, the former skipper of the Cincinnati Reds, who not only was the skipper for Homer Bailey, he was also his pitching coach. And Brian Price and Bob Melvin are really good buddies. They're both Cal guys, as Brian is from the Bay Area, born in San Francisco, went to high school and grew up in Mill Valley, of course went to Cal. And we'll talk to Brian Price about Bob Melvin and also about Homer Bailey. And then she has slowly but surely become one of my favorites, Sarah Langs. She's a writer and reporter for MLB.com. She is truly one of the best researchers of just nuggets. I mean, the stuff she puts out on Twitter, at S Langs on sports. She is a tremendous follow on Twitter. If you're a baseball fan, you should be following her. And then we're going to have Dan Zimborski. Dan Zimborski is the senior writer for Fangraphs, and he's one of the better ones in the game. But we're going to lead it off with Rex Hudler. Loved him as a player. I dig his style as a broadcaster. Man, his heart is in it. And it's in every game. Even though the Royals are bad, you listen to him. The head man, he's excited for every game, even though they've only won, like, what, 33 or 34 games. But here is the wonder dog, Rex Hudler. Well, our next guest is somebody I've had on for years, and we've always loved him, whether he was a player, a broadcaster. You know, with the A's, we got to see him all the time with the Angels. And now Rex Hudler's working for the Kansas City Royals. The HUD man, one of the best in the business. Rex, how are you? Oh, what a question, sir. And that's such a kind introduction. But but I can tell you, the reason that people liked me when I was a player, especially the opponents and the starting pitcher, because when I was in that lineup, that was an easy out. So, look, they love seeing me in that lineup. <laughs> that is so not true. You know why they loved you? Because you played the game the way you're supposed to play the game, and that's why everybody has always respected you, and they know now that you're talking about the game on television, you do it with such passion, you love this game, but the reason why people have always been about the HUD man is because of the way you played. I sure appreciate that. That was a lot of that was instilled in my upbringing, but I can tell you that uh, being raised in Fresno, California, just three hours from your beautiful home there, um, the, the Bullard High School, the Coach Snokes, um, who went to Berkeley, um, you know, he instilled in me that that's the one thing you owe the game, and that is a hustle. That's the one thing you owe, and I had no idea, and no one else did, that I was going to be blessed to be a big leaguer. I mean, and so then when there was paying customers in the stands, it was easy. Are you kidding? Some people probably couldn't afford being there, but they paid their way in. I'm going to give them at least all I got, bud. And that's the rest. I, I would hope the modern-day player thinks that way, too. 
Well, we want to talk to you about Homer Bailey as the Athletics just acquired him. And the 33-year-old, you know, after a few years of injuries, seems to, as they say, Stella got her groove back. We know his fastball's up a few ticks. We know he's using his splitter way more. What did you see these last eight or so starts from Homer Bailey? Well, thanks for your call about him because, look, I analyzed all of his games. The one great thing that we have here in Kansas City, that's really good coaching. And the pitching coach here is Cal Eldred. Cal got him, and when, before they signed him, he watched some video on, on Homer, and, and he said, I can help him. I know I, there's a couple of tweaks I can do. Well, those tweaks ended up working out. And what happened is he pitched in a big ballpark here at Kauffman Stadium at 410 straightaway center field, and he wasn't no longer in a bandbox ballpark like, like uh, uh, you know, Cincinnati. That ballpark is a launching pad. So when he, his first couple starts, he nibbled a little bit, you know, because that's what he's used to. For the last 10 years, he was, was pitching in that ballpark. And then he got here, and he started trusting his stuff. And the one thing we knew he had was, uh, was a good split finger. But because – he had a couple of ticks more with his fastball. He would use that up in the zone on hitters and get them looking, and then he would show he would throw that split finger, which is a real nice pitch for him. Now, he was either hot or cold. He was on with it. Uh, he was nails, and he could eat up five, six, seven innings sometimes. And if not, you know, he would leave his split finger up, and it could be hit. And he's got a nice little slider that complements those three pitches. So if he's up and down, which really raises the eye level of hitters, he can have a lot of success, and he's big, strong, and durable, and, you know, has great mound presence. You won't see him making a motion, you know, no emotion at all. He's, that's exactly – he don't give the hitters, the opposing hitters, anything to feed off of. He was a real pro watching him pitch. Well, and I got to think what you said about pitching in Kansas City. Wouldn't you say the same thing's going to be out here in our big ballpark in Oakland? That's exactly right. So there you go. He's already – we've conditioned him for your pennant race. And that's exactly what we're, well, what Dayton Moore acquired him for. They wanted to, you know, maybe, maybe uh, you know, show, show the league he had something left. And sure enough, he does. And now you guys got him. You got a good, solid guy you can rely on. I actually was looking forward to calling his game last night. And they didn't tell us for about, you know, 20 minutes before the game that, that uh, you know, he wasn't in there. But, you know, good for you guys. Um, all the best to you in that, in that uh, beautiful West out there. Um, but, you know, you got a guy who you can rely on. And he's been strong all year. As a matter of fact, his pitches, his fastball is mid-90s uh, you know, all year long, and maybe a tick above that at, at times. But you know, he's going to live right at mid-90s, maybe a little bit below. But when you include the secondary pitches and his experience, you got a guy that can win some games for you, let's hope. No doubt, and he's thrown two no-hitters, so he knows he has the stuff. And, and when I think about a guy, I mean, obviously this has been a tough year in Kansas City. What do you think this does for a veteran player to leave a team that's struggling like the Royals to now be in a pennant race and join a team that's 12 games over five hundred? Well, he's a, a perfect fit because um, he's hungry, and, he, and, and at this stage of his career, he wants to win. There's four stages for a baseball player if he's lucky enough to have a long career. Okay, first is you want to get there. Next, you want to you want to you know stay there, and then you want to paid, and then the last stage is you want to win. Okay, so certainly he appreciated this opportunity that the Royals gave him to to go out there every fifth day. Uh, that's a that's a privilege, and you know, and also he's thankful for that. But now. This is a, an exciting deal. I'm happy for him and the opportunity he has to play with Bob Melvin and you guys out there and, and all those wonderful baseball players you have that are extremely talented. He's going to get some. Uh, he's going to bring some energy there. Let's hope when he's out there between the lines and uh, stay healthy and finish strong. That's all you can ask for. What kind of you, you, you've seen everybody in the American League, and you know the A's are red hot right now, as they usually do this dance in June and July, where they struggle early, but then June and July they get it going. What kind of chance do you give the A's against what you've seen so far in the American League? Well, you know what, Bob Melvin, he's an outstanding skipper. He's been through it, and he knows he's a lot like Terry Francona, which is which is really a huge compliment to Bob that I would I would put him in Tito's league. Because Tito's got a couple of world championships, you know, he, but still, Bob knows the ropes. He knows how to motivate his guys. 
you know, he encourages them. He empowers them. So when you have young talent like that, it's easy. You kind of just stay out of the way and let these guys go out and do their thing, man. Get them on base. Get them over. Heck, that's a power in your, in your lineup. But I give Melvin a lot of credit in the front office for constantly, year after year, instilling that winning uh, mentality. You know, you don't, you don't win anything in April. But, you know, when you finish strong teams like that, Terry Francona, he's the same way. The Cleveland Indians the last several years, you know, they, they always started slow, but he has a way of getting these guys to play when you really count. And we all know that the best finish first in the la- at, the end of the, at the end of their time, at the end of the season. You know, they, no one asks you how you started the season. They always ask you, how'd you finish up? So we know you got a game, and we're going to get you out of here, but I want your opinion on the Central. As you have Minnesota, they've kind of surprised people. Unbelievable power. They're probably going to set the record for most home runs in the year. The, the Tribe has kind of got their groove back. Uh, who do you like at the end? Do you like the Twins or do you like the Indians? Well, you know, it's hard to count out the Indians. The Indians could, I don't know, they haven't figured out whether they're going to be buyers or sellers, but I believe, I believe you know, you're anywhere with 10 games. At this time of year, you're in it. Okay, so so they I would expect them to add. Of course, Kluber gets back. You know they got some injured injured pitchers. Uh, Clevenger's already back. You know Bauer. You know they hopefully won't trade him now. If they if they deal him, then you can look at Minnesota. But the the Indians always have good starting pitching. And um, you know this kid Bieber, who was the MVP of the All Star game, he's tough. And Francona, I I think his bullpen. You know I think it's good. But he told me the other day that. He don't like the fact that he don't have any real power, uh, guys that can blow you away and get the strikeouts. Most managers love that type of reliever because they can get the strikeouts late when they need them. But uh, uh, you can't count Cleveland out, but I'm saying Minnesota has the mojo right now and they got a little bit of more energy. Well, we know you got a game, and I truly appreciate you taking the time before your call. As you know, we have all the respect in the world for you and what you've done in your career, and we'll see you in late August for a four-game set in Kansas City. Can't wait to get to the beautiful city out there by the bay. We love you, and you all the best to you guys. And uh, thank you so much for letting me share on your show. I've always enjoyed having that guy on my shows. He is absolutely terrific. And this guy, our next guest, is really respected in the game of baseball. Some people think he might be the best pitching coach in all of baseball. Had a rough time as a manager in Cincinnati, but they just weren't very good. But he's taken the year off, and he's there was a couple teams that offer him gigs, and he turned it down. So we'll probably see him managing or at least being a pitching coach again next year. He was Homer Bailey's pitching coach and also his manager, a former Cal Bear and a Bay Area guy and a good buddy of Bob Melvin's. Here is Brian Price. Brian Price, Chris Townsend with the Oakland Athletics. We appreciate you coming on the program. Oh, thanks, Chris. I appreciate you having me. We were just talking about, because you know how much we love our skipper, Bob Melvin, and, and, and what he has meant to the A's. Like yourself, a Bay Area guy, a Cal guy, and when he got to the A's, I'm telling you, it was pretty bleak. The A's were not doing well. There was a black cloud over the organization, and it's like Melvin came in, and the skies cleared, the sun came out, and we've never looked back since. Uh, what's your relationship with him, and what was it like working with him both in Seattle and Arizona? Well, I, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head there because I, you know, I, I, I was fortunate to work with Bob, uh, both in Seattle and his, in his first managerial opportunity. And, and then again, in, in, uh, Arizona in his second, uh, spot. And I thought he was outstanding in both. I think two organizations that probably are, um, uh, disappointed in how they reacted, um, during a couple of tough seasons have some big regrets in letting Bob go in um, both Seattle and, and Arizona, because I think he's done nothing but establish himself as, as one of the truly, you know, outstanding managers in major league baseball. And, uh, and he's proven it, especially with Oakland. I think, uh, you know, when I, I saw that team in, in, in 2011 and, and I was, I agreed with a lot of the pundits that thought that, that the A's might lose a hundred games in, in 2012 and they end up sneaking past Texas at the end of the season. And it was just, it to me had to be the greatest job, not, not just done by Bob, but certainly Bob had a huge involvement and role in getting those 25 players to, to play so well. Yeah. It, it, and knowing both Billy and Bob really well and the way they're working together, you know, this was to me really the first manager 
that Billy Bean had that he realized, okay, I got the guy. And for you, you've managed and you've been around it for a long time. How important is it in modern-day baseball that the front office and the manager, they have to be pulling on the same rope? Yeah, and I think that there's there's more and more challenge with that, especially if you're dealing with uh, an established manager and a young up-and-coming general manager because of philosophically that, that the, the game is changing exponentially season by season and how in the use of data, the use of analytics and how that is, is going to be, uh, how that's going to drive how you use your roster, the types of players that, that you want to add to your roster, uh, you know, um, how you, how you position yourself defensively, how you use your starting pitching, your bullpen, your bench players, et cetera. Um, and that's tough because as, as a manager, it's hard to, to want to relinquish that, some of that responsibility um, to the front office. I think that's the biggest challenge. And I think in Bob's case is, first of all, he's approachable. Second of all, he's an extremely smart guy and a savvy baseball person, and he's a people person. So, you know, I think in the worst way, he wants everyone to be given the opportunity to do their job. And in the same respect, uh, he has that um, uh, his, history. He has a history as a player as a coach and as a manager and as a very successful manager um, that, that uh, connects with the players. They, they trust him. I think they respond to him. They know, they know he's, he, he's won every place he's been. He's been in three big league organizations as a manager. He's won each place he's gone and they trust him. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that, that you can hope to get from a manager is that, is that not only the players trust him, but the front office does as well. Yeah, I've been hearing this a lot, you know, traveling around with the A's and talking to a lot of people. You know, the phrase, they got to buy in. The players, you can have all the data, you got all this radar and cameras and stat casts, but somehow you get, they got to get the players to buy in. And you as a pitching coach or a manager, how tough is it to get everybody to buy in? Well, it's, you know, it's a different day and age, you know, as much as, as, as we're talking, you know, now that the newest thing is uh, being able to steal first base on a wild pitch, you know, that we're seeing changes and even ideas, even if they haven't been implemented yet, uh, change, the game is changing so rapidly, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and the other part is, is that the young players that are coming in the game today, many of them have been playing, you know, uh, year round baseball, the travel baseball, they, they, most of them have had a pitching or hitting coach, for several years um, prior to get getting into professional baseball, meaning somebody at home who they work with, uh, you know, during the school year or in their off seasons um, that give them regular uh, information that they still stay in touch with now. I mean, it's not uncommon to, to see a player in a big league clubhouse on the phone with his hitting coach or his pitching coach from back home. And so you've got to find a way now, as crazy as that sounds, in my opinion, it, it's, you have to find a way to marry that. You've got to be able to, 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 to create an environment where the, the player feels safe, still having a relationship with, with the coaches that he's, he's, he's built trust with in the past, uh, as well as bridging that with his new coaching staff. And so by getting players to buy in to trust as a coach or a manager now is, is exponentially harder than it was years ago, but it takes a unique, uh, special personality to be able to do that. Um, especially somebody that's, you know, that's a little older, you know, Bob's uh, 57 now, I believe, um, you know, a lot more of these managers are in their thirties and forties than are in their fifties and sixties these days. And large part, I think because of their ability to relate with the younger player um, and Bob continues to be able to do that, which is a, you know, which is I think another feather in his hat. You know, there's, there, there, there's so much information for these players, but not every guy wants it, or not every guy is it going to help. As a coach, and I'm, I'm really thinking as a pitching coach or a hitting coach, how do you look at the player and really figure out, is all this stuff going to be too much for him, or is this the right amount of information for a guy? Well, I think the most important thing is you have to get to know the individual uh, and you can't, you know, you know, years ago, you know, even recently, you know, you'll have guys that'll come in and say, Hey, you know what? I just want the pit, the catcher to call the game and I'll, I'll throw the game that the catcher calls. And the an- antithesis of that, of course, is the one that is the, is the guy that preps the game for the game and wants to know every single statistic, you know, you can get um, it broken down even to the point on, on strike zones, like on for umpires, you know, an umpires strike zone. He calls, 
the pitch uh, maybe is a little more generous on that down and away location to a right-handed hitter than he is on the inside corner. And then you may try to milk that against a particular umpire. So uh, the data extends well beyond the basic, uh, you know, uh, what a pitcher throws on what counts with what probability, et cetera. So I, I think that um, you have to kind of find out what guys can absorb and you have to lean on the other guys. Sometimes you got to lean on your more veteran players to be able to, to help, you know, um, uh, kind of find their way into uh, their teammates to, to, to get them to buy into some of the stuff you want them to do. Uh, sometimes you lean a bit more on the catchers to make sure that they're following a game plan. They don't allow a pitcher to throw a stupid pitch. Um, and, but those are things that have been going on for, for years. But it's, I'll tell you, it's not always easy. You know, you're finding pitchers, players coming up nowadays are, are kind of a, a little bit more of a sense of knowing what makes them successful and uh, are probably a little more reluctant to to let people in there to try to make modifications to their game. Well, the A's just traded for Homer Bailey. Obviously, you know him well. You were his skipper. You were his pitching coach. At 33 years old, we're seeing a little uptick in the velocity. He's throwing the split finger a lot more. What do you think he has left to give the A's here in, in this pennant race? Well, you know, my feeling is he's got plenty left. You know, he missed so much time. I think he got hurt in August of 2014 and probably wasn't completely healthy until last season. And, you know, he got on, uh, you know, uh, in a rut on a, on a, you know, a team that wasn't, you know, wasn't a top level team. Um, and, and he just didn't have a, very, a good year at all. And it really uh, misrepresented, uh, you know, the type of player he was from 2010 through 2014, which to me was one of the more dependable uh, starting pitchers in the National League. Uh, he's an innings guy. He loves to compete. He understands as a starter's responsibility to pit, is to pitch deep in the game, and that's changed over time. You know, Homer, we counted on Homer for, you know, six, seven, eight innings, uh, you know, plus per start when he was in Cincinnati um, as recently as 2014, and now in 2019, you, know, you find a lot more teams that are trying to get through the order twice and then look to the bullpen. Um, you know, I think Homer, now that he's healthy, is a guy that's going to take the ball every five days and, and give you a chance to win. Uh, I saw his games earlier in the in the year, not as, as recent, um, not, not many of his recent starts, and he commands the fastball well, the velocity's back up, and his splitter's as good as I've ever seen it. I've never seen him throw it so consistently. So I think they've got a nice weapon here and, and a guy with, uh, with some, some uh, playoff experience, so I think he'll help him down the stretch. What kind of guy is he teammate, and what kind of guy is he in the clubhouse? Oh, he's a good teammate. He's, you know, he's very direct. He's he's very honest. He doesn't like the, you know, he, he's not a, a a big media guy. He's not a social media guy. He just, he likes, he likes, he's got his baseball life and he handles his responsibilities. He's, a, he's an extremely hard worker and a tremendous preparation guy. He will take the field with a, a knowledge of, of, of the opposing team. And he will talk, may have a good relationship with his catcher, a uh, very strong communicator, uh, so he'll take the he'll take the field prepared. There'll be no doubt about that. Um, but he has his private life. You know, he likes his private life, and he likes to separate baseball from his his private life. And uh, uh, he he's he, I just think I just think they're getting a really good pitcher at, a, at just the right time uh, after he's recovered from some of these surgeries. Let's end on this, and there, and you know, every single manager at some point, you know, us media guys can be really annoying, and I can tell you, Brian, there's times that I get annoyed with some of the media people, and I remember that one time you went off on the media, and it was like a six-minute rant. Do you ever like sit back and laugh at that? Because because that was one that was that was one of the best I've ever heard. Well, you know what? I, 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 I don't, I haven't, I've never heard it. I never listened to it. So I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know what it sounded like. I do know that I did not say that this is off the record and I should have, <laughs> uh, even though in the aftermath, I said, Hey, this is, you know, I, in the aftermath, I said, you know, I, I want this to stay here because it was really meant for the people that were in the room. It wasn't a national, uh, it wasn't, a, it wasn't something I was trying to make a point of and say, Hey, this is a national epidemic, but you know, my, my my concerns were so much of what was happening and how much time people were in that were in the clubhouse to kind of witness some of the things that I didn't want them to be privy to, you know, as far as which players were healthy, which ones were injured, who, you know, we had a player that was going to miss a game because his father was having open heart surgery, heart, uh, open heart surgery, and he was going to go home, but he was an active player. And that was Devin Mesoraco. And, 
And so the, the, my concern was that that shouldn't be information that the opposing team has to know that we're down a player, you know? And so things like that get shared. Uh, and I just felt like that was really unfair. That being said, um, the, the language I used was so out of line. That was the only regret I had. I thought the message was right on. I said what I wanted to say. I said it with a lot of bad language. <laughs> and that's my only regret. And at some point in time, I'll go back and listen to it. And I, I hope to get a chuckle instead of a wince. Well, you, you know the thing that we don't understand as media people? Because we don't look, and especially fans do the same thing is we don't look at these guys as human beings. We look at them as robots, and we don't understand, like you said, father having open-heart surgery. Maybe somebody in the family's passed away. Maybe there's something going on with their girlfriends or wives. And it's something that as a manager, that's got to be tough because you got to manage you got to you got to manage the people and, and, and you know what's going on, but we we don't. And, and it's kind of a sad thing that we judge these guys just basically what they do between the lines, but the reality is they're human beings and they've got stuff going on in their life too. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's it, you try to create a win-win situation. I mean, certainly we we appreciate you know I appreciate what the media does in covering the club and and keeping keeping people's interests or creating interest in the game and the sport. And I also understand that with the the jobs that we have as players, coaches, managers, at the general managers, front offices, that there's going to be criticism, and that's part of it. Um, uh, so I, I get all that stuff. And I also understand that there's other people that are trying to make a living other than just me. You know, there's, there's people in the media that, that have their family to feed and they're, and they're trying to make a living too, doing something they like. Um, I do think that there has to be, you know, to, if you want a manager or coach, a player to be really open and honest, you, you have to respect certain parts of things that need to be off limits. And I think sometimes in that c- competitive effort to make sure that, that people stay on top of their coverage is I think sometimes it gets a little too close. I I do think that there are certain things that, that teams should have the right to keep to themselves. Um, You know, I think a player that's going to get sent to the minor leagues or released should not learn that from a, a Twitter, you know, feed or something that, that comes out through the media. I think that that should be a conversation that happens between a manager and a player and and that was another thing that happened is there was, you know, there was a situation where one of our, our players was uh, going to be activated and it was out there. And so obviously one of, with the player that was going to be, you know, affected was going to have to read that before I had a chance to talk to him. I just thought, that, I think things like that are unfair. Sometimes they're unavoidable, but I think when they are avoidable, we should really do everything we can to, to respect those, uh, you know, the feelings of the players and staff. Brian, thank you so much for your time. We truly appreciate it. Uh, We do the Bob Melvin Show tomorrow, and uh, I'll tell Bob that you said hello. Please do, Chris. A real treat to speak with you, and good luck, A's. Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Okay, you too. Take care, Chris. Yeah, I can't wait to see where he ends up next year. I, I think there's a good chance we're going to see him managing again because so much respect for him as a baseball mind and as a man that knows how to get everything, and I mean everything, out of a pitching staff. Sarah Langs, MLB.com. Can't say enough about how good she is. You can hear her on Buster Only's podcast. We want to get her on as much as possible from MLB.com. She is absolutely fantastic. She is one of the best follower on Twitter, S Lang on Sports. That's S Lang on Sports. I check her stuff every day because her nuggets are unbelievable. Sarah Langs from MLB.com joining us here on A's Cast Live with Chris Townsend. Sarah, how have you been? Hey, I'm great. How are you? Thank you for that intro. I think I can fix baseball from a standpoint of attendance. What do you got? All right. Did you read the article about the Atlantic League and them using TrackMan to call balls and strikes? Yes. Yes. Okay. What if I could, I'm in Silicon Valley right now. We're around Google, Amazon, Apple. Apple's almost literally down the street from me. What if I got one of their, their engineers and I created an app where everybody in the ballpark could download this app? Now, we're going to have to go to Robo Strike Zone here, but I could follow that strike zone in real time on my phone no matter where my seat was in baseball. Oh, my goodness. Feels like it opens the door to a lot of people being unhappy on Twitter, doesn't it? 
Well, but, but but think about when you're when you're down the left field line, the right field line. You can't tell whether it's a ball or a strike now because I could I, I I could get this app to connect to because basically what's going to happen is I, I found this out is that baseball is going away from TrackMan and next year they're signing a deal with Hawkeye and Hawkeye is these cameras and 3D that basically if you watch Wimbledon that's what they have in tennis. Well, you could do what we saw in tennis whether the ball was in or out at Wimbledon. In, we could do with the actual strike zone, and now every single fan in the ballpark could follow along in real time. I see what you're saying. I mean, I think it's not really that different from what we see on a lot of the national broadcasts, even the local broadcasts now, right, where you get the little box of the strike zone. Obviously, it doesn't really adjust for the batter or anything like that, but when you get the little K zone kind of next to the pitcher and next to the batter during the, at that, so you're just saying, you know, you're sitting in the stands and you would kind of still see that. I like it. Yeah, do you remember when that first came out? Everybody hated it, and now every broadcast yeah. has it. Yeah, and you're when it's not there, you're you're looking for it. You're like, I, I need to know where that pitch is. It's great, you know, that we can look on game day and everything. And you know, obviously, it does lead to a lot of criticism of umpires. And I always think that you know, there's a reason that they're the professionals, and the reason that those people are doing that. Um, so that always makes me feel a little bit badly. But it is nice to be able to see that and follow along. And to your point about not knowing, I mean, I have been at so many games in the stands in my life where, you know, you hear everyone in the crowd complaining about a call, and I'm like, none of them can even see it. So to that point, at least you make people more informed, right? So if they're going to complain, at least they can be, you know, informed complaints. Yeah, and that's where I think, like, yesterday we had a play at the plate with Matt Chapman, and after you really looked at a different camera angles, he was safe. He was called out. Uh, but he was safe, and the problem is with replay, what we have now is that you have to overturn the call, and it's not its not the technology that has to overturn the call. It's still human beings back in New York have to use the technology, and they don't like overturning calls. So it's like, how can we get this game? We have all this technology. We can do everything we can with technology, but yet – the humans are still deciphering balls and strikes out or safe. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm so in favor of all of the innovations that we've seen in baseball. And I think instant replay has obviously been such a good thing, even though we do see sometimes calls that maybe should have gone another way. But I sometimes I just feel so old fashioned when I'm like, you know what? I miss the human element, you know, like the New York Mets would not have a no hitter if there was instant replay in 2012 when Johan Santana threw that no-hitter because Carlos Beltran hit a ball down the left field line that was definitely fair. And it was called foul, and that was it, and that was before the advent of replay or anything else like that. So, you know, you can think back to so many moments in time, and the truth is that, you know, it all evens out in the wash, right? I mean, you know, they've probably had another call that didn't go their way, you know, at some point in their history before replay began. So, you know, I'm still adjusting to the fact that we get fewer of those kinds of moments. I don't know. Just the baseball geek in me loves those things and that kind of lore. Let's talk about another adjustment, and I'm looking at your Twitter account. And on your timeline yesterday, <laughs> July 14th, I think one of the tweets that you had yesterday says it all. Christian Yelich just hit his 32nd home run of the year. Last year on July 14th, he had 11. I this has absolutely blown me away because think about what we saw from Christian Yelich in the second half last season. And to be fair, it was really the second half where he turned it on, but he was like the best player we had seen in a very long time outside of the Mike Trouts and whoever else for a whole half of the season. And it's just incredible that he came in day one this year and he was that guy, if not better, he's making incredibly good contact. His hard hit rate is the exact same right now to this moment as it was last year. He's hitting the ball with a 94.2 average mile an hour average exit velocity. He's just doing everything. But, you know, it's interesting. I was uh, looking into some stuff yesterday. I was just getting curious, looking at some stuff with Bellinger and him. And obviously, you know, MLB rolled out, by the way, those outstanding ads during the All-Star break with the belly yelly. If you haven't seen those, go to their Twitter. Um, they play, they say, let's play MVP. And they basically play horse but hitting home runs. But anyway, I was looking at the two of them, and, you know, what's really distinguished Bellinger to this point in this year is they've both done the uh, offense. You know, we've seen it outside, you know, off, off the charts. But Yelich's defense is not quite as good as Bellinger's. Bellinger is really speedy, and he's worked on that a bunch this year, and Yelich hasn't done that. He's one of the absolute worst in our outfielder jump metric on StatCast, and his outs above average is 
not good. We have these little sliders. If you go to the page on uh, Baseball Savant's website, and he's in the blue on like a blue to red scale, which is not where you want to be. That being said, obviously, he is a top two MVP candidate right now. But it's interesting to me how Bellinger has distinguished himself in that way. And when I think about you being in New York, have you been paying attention to our green and gold as the A's right now? If it all ended today, they'd be in the playoffs or 12 games over 500. They're scoring a ton of runs. What do you think about the Oakland Athletics right now on July 15th? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I think I was actually pretty high on them entering the year. And I think kind of early in the season, I was like, wow, was I, was I wrong about that? You know, what's going on here? But I think they've really turned around. I think they've been great. I think they're a lot of fun to watch. You know, there's, I, I, would, I wish I could watch Matt Chapman play for every team every night. You know, I stay up. I watch all the West Coast games. I watch everything. But I wish I could watch him even more than that. And I think, you know, the trade for Homer Bailey yesterday is interesting. I mean, Homer Bailey is certainly the most, you know, trade acquisition worthy of a candidate that he's been in the last few years. So I think, you know, good on them to make a move and try to address there at least to get some innings. Um, but I was excited to see that because I was like, yeah, I want them to go for this. You know, I want them to be competitive. And I thought that they had such a great season last year. And, you know, it's just the curse of the wild card game, the way that it works. You have one game, you, you know, march into Yankee Stadium. It's really hard, you know, and nope. it's really great to see them coming back raring this year and, you know, hopefully headed for the playoffs again. A guy that you get to see a lot, and we brought it up in our pre-show meeting, and all of a sudden I, my producer Cody was like, hey, I could see the Astros getting this guy. I went, really? Noah Syndergaard, and I'm wondering about Thor. Like, to me, I'm not trading him, but who knows with the way the, the Mets season's going, and do they want to rebuild? Is there going to be a lot of change? What's going on with Syndergaard? Do you think he'll be moved? You know, everything I've seen in terms of what Brody Van Wagenen has said and what the team has said was basically that, you know, DeGrom is definitely safe and it seems like Syndergaard is too. But, I mean, personally, I wonder if, you know, Zach Wheeler just went on the injured list today. And I would not, if I were in a front office, I would still probably be interested in acquiring him at this point. It doesn't seem to be, you know, a surgery type of injury. It just seems to be like he's going to be out 10 days. Uh, and I think he could really help a team down the stretch. But if teams are a little wary of acquiring him with that injury, I, I wonder if that might convince the Mets. I mean, I have no, I have no inside knowledge there, but you know that might maybe um, convince them to market a guy like Syndergaard. You know, if they were sort of planning on getting some sort of haul back for Wheeler, and that you know might not be coming anymore. But you know, it's just interesting. I mean, Syndergaard was so good when he first came up. He was so good for them in that postseason. And it's just been really interesting to see what's happened since. Obviously, he was injured in 20, uh, 2017, excuse me. And last year, you know, he had a 303 ERA, but he wasn't really the cinder guard that we'd seen. And he talked a lot in spring training this year about how he wasn't satisfied with what he had done in 2018 and how he wanted to be significantly better this year. And unfortunately, he just he really hasn't been. He has a 455 ERA. He has a 385. So, I mean, there's definitely been some defensive issues and other stuff going on behind him, but he still hasn't been that Thor that we're used to seeing. And, you know, the thing that really concerns me is that slider was his pitch, and it has not been his pitch at all this year. He really hasn't been able to rely on it as an out pitch. And I remember, you know, uh, in 2016 and even 2015, I was kind of starting to get into being a researcher. I had just started my first job in 2015, and, like looking up notes on his slider was one of my absolute favorite things. It was like how I learned to like use our old tools with the pitch types and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's not as great of results when you look at it now. So that's kind of an area of concern, but that being said, you know, he's been a predominantly healthy pitcher in his career and I'm sure he could help the team down the stretch. I'm just not sure if they're going to want to move him. Yeah. You're one of those smarty smartisans from the university of Chicago. <laughs> No, no. I was just learning to use sports websites. You know, <laughs> slightly different. Ah, University of Chicago's a big deal. We know about that here out west. <laughs> okay, so I want to throw another picture at you in our neck of the woods that there's been a whole lot of talk about as he has mm -hmm. one of the great postseason resumes in the history of baseball, but his stuff clearly isn't the same. What do you think happens with Madison Bumgarner? Ah, uh, You know, okay, so... 
my parents are going to listen to this when it goes up as a podcast uh, tomorrow or later tonight because they're not in the Bay Area, so they can't listen live. So I won't get the angry text from my mother until tomorrow. So at least I have that going for me. She is a big Giants fan. She really does not want Madison Bumgarner to be traded. I do not think that she will get her wish. I mean, I just think that he is such a valuable trade ship for that team, and I think that Farhan Zaidi will make that move um, just based on what we've seen from him so far um, and what we know of his track record. And as we said, you know, there are a lot of teams out there that need pitching, and the allure of what Bumgarner could do in the postseason is I just think so captivating to these teams. And the truth is he's been a lot better this year, maybe not across the board, but certainly over the last two months at this point than he had been in a very long time. I mean, he's starting to look like the bum garner before he had his couple different injury issues. And that's really intriguing, you know, and it's intriguing to see where that sort of momentum might go. I mean, you know, he has a 3.86 ERA right now. He was actually better last year, but he didn't pitch as much. He's, his next start will match his total from last season. And he is just really starting to look like that 2016 Bumgarner, which I think most people would say was like his last good year. It's the last time he got Cy Young votes. He finished fourth. And, you know, he's been striking out more guys. He had 10 strikeouts and then nine strikeouts. Um, and back-to-back starts the other day where he almost had back-to-back 10 strikeout games for the first time in like two years. And, I really think that he could help the team and he has a lot fewer red flags than a guy like Syndergaard um, because he, he is having a better season across the board, but you know, it, it'll just be interesting. You know, it's so interesting to think of this giant's core and think about the fact that, you know, this guy who was so key to those three world series. And obviously that's how he built that postseason resume that he could be traded away and that we could really see the end of, I mean, the giant's dynasty ended, in 2016 against the Cubs in that ninth inning. But this would really kind of shut the door, if you ask me. So in your neck of the woods, uh, the Yankees, when they take on the Rays, the Rays are the little engine that could. And they seem to – they're afraid of nobody. But when they get in the Bronx – Man, dating back to September 2014, the Yankees have won 34 of 47 from the Rays, and the Rays have lost 14 of 15 series in the Bronx in that span. Why do you think the Rays have struggled so much in Yankee Stadium? Yeah, you know, it's so weird, right? I mean, so many of these things are so inexplicable. If you look at what the Twins have done at Yankee Stadium, obviously they don't play them as frequently, so the span actually goes further back to match the same number of games. But the Minnesota Twins have this thing where they absolutely cannot win at Yankee Stadium. I think they ended up winning a game there this year, but I honestly can't even remember. But it was a thing. It was a stretch. It was one of whatever. And I I, I don't even know. It feels like this has to be intangible to play in some way because – The Rays, for the better part of a year plus now, have been a pretty good team. And to their credit, I have it on right in front of me, they're at 2-0 right now because Travis Darno has two solo home runs. He let off the game with a solo home run, which is just not what I expected 2019 to look like on July 15th. But you, you just have to figure that the way the Yankees come out, and the Yankees play everyone good at home, and it's maybe it's just that they play the Rays there so much that somehow this is how the law of averages works out. Because, you know, we're talking about a team with Blake Snell and a lot of really good players. So I, I wonder if it'll still look that way if we look at it in like two years when the teams have been concurrently good for the same amount of time. Because if you talk about three years ago, I mean, it's a very different Rays team, right, than they've been really since partway through last year. All right, I want you to put your G. I want you to put your. Uh, I want you to be the the leader of baseball. You're going to be the commissioner. Rob Manfred <laughs> said, "Sarah, we're putting you in charge for a day." And last night on Sunday Night Baseball, you could tell Vaskersian and the core they were not thrilled with the long extra inning game. The game went well past midnight on the East Coast. You know, we'll see games go 17, 18 innings. Nobody's in the stands. Everybody has to go home because they got to work. Uh, you know that the ratings on television and radio all take a nosedive. What would you do with extra innings in baseball? God, you know, I'm I'm the person who just wants the games to go on forever. I am the person who loves the 20-inning games and whatever else. You know, I think there was some game – 
that went a really long time. Obviously, there have been a bunch, but at some point last year, and uh, Buster only had me on his podcast the next day, and we were talking about this, and whoever his other guest was that day completely disagreed with me. We didn't talk at the same time, but I learned because Buster told me, because I said, I want all the long game. And the other person was like, no, we should just end after 10. But I, you know, back to what I said, honestly, about replay and this human element. I mean, I just love, I have such distinctive memories of like every 20 inning game that has been played at least in the last 10 years. I remember where I was. I remember what I was doing. I remember the 15 things I did during it or the fact that I didn't move off my couch and I'm just always going to love those things. But I also understand that that may not be how the general public feels, but you know, we're not seeing, it feels like there's a lot of extra inning games and this isn't what I'm about to tell you. Isn't necessarily about how long those games go, but there's, 8.48% of games this season have gone to extras. That's no context, so I will tell you that last year was 8.89%. So we're down from last year. And there really hasn't been any sort of trend in this, honestly, at any point in baseball history, other than that there were actually more extra inning games if you go back to the 40s. Um, It was 10% of games in 2013. There's, like, no real – it's kind of hovered between, like, 11 and seven or eight over the last, you know, 10 or 20 years. And I think it's something that I don't know. I just love watching those games. You know, if it were something like there was 20% of games this year and that hadn't happened in 50 years, then okay. You know, maybe there's something we need to address here, but you know, if anything, I, I love seeing how these managers have to piece stuff together and the legends you get or who hits the latest walk-off home run in franchise history. Like Buster Posey did that for the Giants. I think it was two years ago. And it was like, the Giants have existed forever. And Buster Posey just did that. That's so cool. And those things will always get to me. So unfortunately, I would stand pat, but I understand why other people might not want that to happen. You just blew my mind. How do you know that? What it was it, 8.4% this year? Yeah, 8.48. So I guess it rounds to 8.5, but yeah. So so I, I'm, using, I'm stealing this. All right, and then last year was 8.9? Yeah, last year was 8.89. Yeah, so 8.9 if we're rounding. Oh, my God. This is why you are like the – if you're into baseball and you're into numbers, you have to follow her on Twitter – at S Langs on Sports. You are absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much for the time, and we'll be in touch very, very soon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you need to follow Sarah on Twitter if you're a baseball fan. At S Langs on Sports. And we're going to end it with Dan Zimborski, senior writer for Fangraphs. How's he loving the A's? We're going to find out right now. And, Dan, we appreciate you taking the time coming on A's Cast Live with Chris Townsend. I've always appreciate you coming on the different shows that I've had. And you know how much we love fan graphs. And the article you did on Marcus, you know, people are really starting to realize he has blossomed into a terrific player after the struggles he went through were just unbelievable. Absolutely. It's an unusual career he's had. Usually players, when they get to this age, they don't tend to take – big steps up fundamentally as players. But Simeon has, in fact, done that, and it's unusual in the way he's done that. Yeah, I mean, I was just telling everybody, you know, when we watched him lead the league in airs, I I watched him, I said, this guy is not a shortstop. Shortstops have beautiful footwork. They're almost like dancers. They're great athletes, and they just look the part. When you look at a natural shortstop, it's a wonderful thing. And you looked at him and went, this is not it. And the way that when they brought in Ron Washington and the way that they worked and the way that they did it publicly, Dan, they did it in front of us. He basically broke him down fundamentally and rebuilt him back up. A lot of people would do this back up in in, in the cages. They did it in front of us in the field and the fact that Marcus was strong enough as a person to say hey listen I'm going to do this during the season I'm going to do this in front of all the writers and TV and radio guys that says so much about a guy's character 
Oh, absolutely. And it also makes you wonder why the White Sox weren't as invested in Simeon's growth as the A's are, because the A's have been all in. Yeah, they, they acquired another shortstop as a prospect to, to possibly bring it in the future because they didn't know what was going to happen with Simeon long term, if he'd be able to stick. I'm personally surprised, too. I think errors tend to be overrated, but you make a lot of errors on the level he did. You have to start wondering, maybe he should be a second base, and maybe he should be a third base, and maybe he should be in center field. But he's transformed himself into a legitimately significantly above average shortstop. And that kind of defensive performance, it, it, it doesn't happen that often. I can usually name with, with on one hand, I can't even think of anyone right now that has had the same mid-career improvement defensively. Wow, doesn't that say a lot? I might just be forgetting, too, but it is highly unusual. Uh, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a boon for the A's because now that left side of the infield is just where ground balls go to die now. You put Simeon next to Chapman. I mean, it's amazing anything ever gets through. Yeah, you think about the athletics, and a few years ago, they led the world in ERAs. It just wasn't Marcus. And you look at their turnaround, and I think a lot of people on the outside will look at numbers. They'll say, well, look at all the home runs they hit, and oh, look how good the bullpen has been. Talk about just really when you think about the A's turnaround in recent years, has been a lot because of their defense. Yeah, it's defense is big now, and the A's are very good at measuring it. Uh, and it does actually I do remember another player, Marco Scutaro, who also did that with the A's. Uh, when he came up with the Mets, he was not considered uh, a defensive prospect, but his defense, his defense improved tremendously uh, with Oakland. Yeah, and, and then uh, we're all going to remember what he did with the San Francisco Giants and what he did in that NLCS, and uh, Marco Scudero will always be a guy that will be loved ar around the green and gold. I mean, when you start looking around baseball right now, and if you're one of these GMs and you're saying to yourself, well, Zach Wheeler just went on the I.L., Cashner now has been traded. And of course, Bailey's been traded from Kansas City over to the Oakland Athletics. Who would you really be focusing on as a pitcher if you need to get a guy? Who would be the guy you'd really, really want? Because you got to get him before the 31st. Well, the guys I really, really want are probably unavailable simply because the Nationals have been winning the last six weeks. Uh, I think the, the two biggest targets left are still Madison Bumgarner, uh, and, and Marcus Stroman of the Blue Jays. Uh, there's, baseball's in kind of a weird place when you talk about the trade deadline, simply because pretty much every NL team, except for the Marlins, is still at least theoretically into contention. So you don't have a lot of sellers there. And if you look at the AL, most of the teams that are terrible have been terrible for a while and have already sold off most of, of, their, of their talent. Like you look at a team like the Orioles, uh, if Kevin Gosman was still with the Orioles and still pitching well, you could see him being a trade target this year. But they already sent him to the Braves, and you can't trade players twice, even though I'm sure Jerry DePoto would love to do that. <laughs> That's a good You know, and, and this is the thing, too, about a lot of these GMs. It's like, okay, yeah, your fan base is going to look at it, and they'll say, well, you're only four games back of the second wild card, or you're four and a half, five. But at some point as a GM, don't you have to be smart and say, you know what, this wild card thing might be a little bit of a pipe dream no matter what our fans feel? Absolutely. I mean, you look at the Giants right now. Uh, I think they're now four games back. I, I, I haven't looked at all the games so far to, to actually add that. But they're four games back, but they're four games back in essentially an 11-team wild card race. And it's hard when you have that many teams in front of you. If you're only four games behind one team, you have a pretty good shot. When you're four games behind nine teams and another two after you, that, that, that's a problem. And I think sometimes, especially because the wild card isn't as valuable as winning the division, I think in scenarios in which there's no chance at winning the division and your team is below 500, you do have to seriously become being sellers, even if the fans, uh, are, are, you're, you're going to lose some rope on that, essentially. I, I think the Giants are our team in that position. Yeah, and I think about Madison Bumgarner, and, and, you know, obviously out where we are, that's being brought up a lot about what does Farhan Zaidi do with him. And then there's also the question is, how much do you really want to pay for Madison Bumgarner at this point in his career? And, and especially when you're renting him in prospects and then going into uh, free agency. I mean, you don't want another – I'm sure he doesn't want another Dallas Keuchel situation where he ends up having to sign in June. 
I, I do think Jeff Samarja is is likely to be traded. He's pitched very well lately. Uh, but Bumgarner is is such a problem when you're trying to find new homes for him because when you're when you're getting the fan base angry, you also have to kind of tell the fan base that Bumgarner isn't quite the picture that he used to be, and the haul in return from him is not going to be like what the White Sox got for Chris Sale or even what the Cubs got for Jose Quintana. They're not going to get a a stable of top prospects who just magically re magically repair the farm system. Uh, so there's a, it's a real problem when you're trying to look to, to swap Bumgarner with someone else. You know, I, I really kind of laughed when they talked about uh, Justin Verlander after he did the article with ESPN and basically ripped Major League Baseball about the baseball and really went in depth about it. And then I suppose he got called into the principal's office and there was Joe Torre and Jim Leland and telling him to quit it. You know, when a guy like Verlander comes out and talks about the baseball being a joke and talks about baseball being behind it, and you start looking at these record numbers of home runs, what are you guys at Fangraph saying about this? Oh, well, the ball has to be juiced at this point. Obviously, your next guest is going to talk about that more in depth because she's terrific. Uh, but you you look at the effect of uh, on baseball this year. The minor, the minor leagues, the AAA leagues, the International League, and the Pacific Coast League, they adopted the baseball that MLB uses this year. And they've already hit as many home runs in 2019, when we're in mid-July, as they did in the entire 2018 season. And the other minor leagues that didn't take MLB's baseball, there's no increase in offense there. So that's really, really hard to explain away with any kind of thing. Like, so the ball's the same, major league hitters are just being different types of players these days. And, yeah, that has an effect, but I don't think they, you'd have this explosion in numbers without the equipment being different. Yeah, Dr. Meredith Wills is going to be joining us coming up here at 6.30, and we'll talk more about the baseball. And she actually feels that the more Rob Manfred talks, the more he backs <laughs> himself into a corner. And at what point do you think baseball is going to have to say, yeah, we're going to have to dial this ball back. I think it's at the point where nobody's believing uh, what MLB says. Uh, it's a good thing I don't work for MLB because I posted a Baghdad Bob meme with Rob Manfred last week, joking about, oh, there's, the balls are the same. Don't look. <laughs> uh, but I think, I mean, there, becomes a, there comes a point where there are too many home runs. I'm not uh, a, 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 a super old-school traditionalist that gets angry about home runs and wants to see lots of bunts and everything. But there becomes a point where it's just too much. I like to have beer. I like to drink beer and eat tacos. But I can't do that three meals a day every day. I have to eat vegetables too. And you need to have some kind of more of a balanced approach here. Home runs are, are more special when there are fewer than them. When every team, when half the teams in the league are going to set their team record for home runs this season, it makes those home run records feel a lot less just interesting in a way. That's one of the great analogies I've ever heard in my career. I could eat tacos and drink beer every single day, too. But uh, we're not going to look pretty good after doing it every single day. <laughs> no, no, we, we, we probably shouldn't, as delicious as it is. <laughs> well, we've been, we, we called this show today the show of change. Because we've been talking about all the different things, about what do you do with extra innings. Sunday Night Baseball last night, the broadcast, they were all over it. These Some of these games are just going too long. we got the Atlantic League using the robo-umps. We've got the Atlantic League. You can steal first base. What is a change that you would like to see in Major League Baseball to improve the game? I, I am a big fan in, ro in robo-umps. Uh, I do think that on a fundamental level, you want to get that call right more than any human element. And there's still lots and lots of calls for the umpires to make. But I think it always looks terrible when, when you see, because the difference between a ball and a strike at any at bat is huge. If you look at a player's uh, uh, offensive numbers by count, just missing a count can be very, very game-changing. Uh, I'm not really a big on stealing first base. I'm, I'm sure like Billy Hamilton would like that. because, But it also... You know, it destroys the old saying about you can't steal first base because then every time you say that, some smart ass is going to go, well, you can. <laughs> and the thing I thought about today, and it got me thinking watching Wimbledon yesterday and thinking about the article that they did about this robo-ump and using TrackMan, and I know Hawkeye's coming in. 
is why not build an app where every single fan in the ballpark can watch the balls and strikes on a TrackMan-like deal. So where if you're down the left field line or right field line or, or high up behind home plate or, or out in the left center field or left field, you could watch this on your phone. I think millennials would love this type of deal. Yeah, I would too. It's a lot of fun. I'm, I'm of the frame of mind that more information tends to be better than less information. Uh, and I, I, I know some people say it takes apart uh, an element of the game, but I think that the calling of the game is, is kind of different than the playing of the game itself. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to replace with robot baseball players. Uh, I mean, that, that would be a little too video gamey for me. I know I've played games that you actually can play with robots, and it's not quite the same. But at, at some level, uh, it's a basic the spirit of competition. I mean, I love Tom Glavin, but he got so many calls on the outside as a pitcher, and I don't think that's good for the game. All right, let's end on this. You want to make a lot of money, so I want you to buy a stock in the American League and a stock in the National League. Who would you buy going forward? You mean on a, on a team basis? On a, on a, I want you to buy one team in the American League, who you want to make money on at the end of the year, and one team in the National League. Okay, in the National League, I, I still think the Cardinals have some unrealized value. You, you look at their team, and they should be scoring a lot better than they have. Yeah, the pitching staff's been a problem, but they all started a situation where Paul Goldschmidt hasn't been that good. And he's not that old at this point. He's 31. He shouldn't be off the cliff. So I'm going to say the Cardinals. I think that they have the most just untapped potential left of any of the teams in the NL. Uh, in the AL... I am going to take Oakland. I do like what Oakland's doing. Uh, I, I'm not sold on Homer Bailey, obviously, but I think it's one of the best defenses in the league. And the thing about Oakland is you guys are always very creative about things. And I like creativity. I think that has a benefit. I, a lot of teams would not have trusted Brett Anderson in the rotation after his long injury history, but the A's did, and they're getting the benefit from that. Uh, so I always go with creativity, I think. You just made this fan base very, very happy. You know that, right? Uh, well, I have a – let's just say with some fan bases, I have a kind of a – they have a mixed feelings about me. Like, Padres fans wouldn't talk to me for years. <laughs> well, there's no reason to talk to them because their team has stunk, so. <laughs> uh, Dan, thank you so much for the time. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon, and uh, congratulations with all the success at Fangraphs. Thanks for having me on. It's always fun. I hope you enjoyed it. I really enjoyed doing these interviews. Love the HUD man. Brian Price was fantastic. Sarah Langs and obviously Dan Zimborski. We'll be having more A's Unfiltered coming up, and we will see you at the ballpark. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. 